G'day folks and welcome to the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. My name's Josh Power and this podcast is an opportunity for me to interview anglers in the fly fishing community, both within Australia and overseas. I'll be speaking with people that I find interesting and inspirational, industry leaders and anglers that have helped pave the way for future generations and hopefully in turn preserve a piece of fly fishing history. I hope you enjoy the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fisho's Tack World Harvey Bay, your one-stop fishing shop on the Fraser Coast stocking a wide range of fly tying materials and tackle with access to all the leading brands. Mako Eyewear, a proudly Australian-owned eyewear company that has been on the leading edge of polarised sunglasses for over 25 years. Manic Tackle Project, a collective of like-minded anglers bringing some of the world's best fly fishing brands to the Australian and New Zealand market, including Sims, Scott Fly Rods, Abel, Ross and Waterworks Lamps and Reels, Airflow Fly Lines, Loon Outdoors and much more. And Garmin Australia, whether you're chasing a new chart plotter, fish finder, trolling motor or audio system, Garmin has you covered. G'day, I'm John Hankey from Fishing Down Under. I'm currently a a fly fishing guide from North Queensland, uh, specialising in sight fishing for barramundi and flat species uh, around the Whitsunday Islands. Well, thanks for coming on today, John. I've been looking forward to this one for some time now. Um, A lot of people will know you from your filming and production work. Like I know when I was growing up, the um, Fishing Down Under DVD series was such a big thing. I remember just hanging out for each time that came out. What we might do is um, establish a bit of a timeline for people that don't know much about you, and then we can go from there until now and see what you're up to. So we might look at first how you first got into fly fishing and when you started. Uh, When I was, I've always been fascinated with fly fishing. I remember my father was a very keen fisherman and he used to get an American magazine back in those days. And uh, it it often had photos of people fly fishing, uh, mainly for trout. And I guess that's where I got my initial interest from. Um, I remember tying a fly when I was a kid and giving it to him, and I think he actually caught a fish on it. Um, But I didn't really start uh, getting serious about it until the mid-70s, early 70s, mid-70s. I was living in Darwin, and I was working as a cameraman for the TV station up there at the time. Uh, We lived in Darwin for five years and there were uh, quite a few people in Darwin at the time that were getting interested in saltwater fly fishing. Um, I ended up buying Lefty Cray's book um, because I was fascinated by it and um, I ended up getting a a nine-weight Fenwick fiberglass blank sent over from Bransford's tackle shop in Cairns at the time. Um, It was very hard to uh, find fly gear or purchase it back in those days. Uh, It wasn't a very common way of fishing. And uh, I made the rod up myself. I got the cork grips and uh, put the snake eyes on it. And I bought an old Shakespeare um, reel which was like an alvey and it weighed a ton. Pretty primitive. <laughs> um, <laughs> so pretty basic but I probably caught more fish on that rod and reel than any other fly rod and reel I've had since I think. Um, in those days uh, I spent a lot of or most of my spare time fishing. It was one of the reasons I was living up there. I loved barramundi fishing and um, it went on from there. So 
initially that's how I got started. Um, it was Darwin and the Northern Territory back in those days. Um, it was a, a, a fairly adventurous sort of place to live. Um, the fishing was fantastic. Uh, it wasn't hard to uh, to catch fish and after a while uh, I started really getting into it, tying different flies, catching different species but Initially, it was mainly barramundi I was targeting, so I had a lot of fun doing that in the fresh and salt water. I could imagine back then it would have been quite hard. You would have had a lot of limitations. You don't have the good gear that we have these days, and even it's quite easy for people like myself these days just to jump on YouTube if you want to learn how to tie a certain pattern or if you want to learn a different knot. Um, So, yeah, you really would have been sort of stepping into uncharted territories then and had to work a lot out for yourself. Yeah, so it was very different in those days. No YouTube, um, none of that easy access to information. Um, most of my information came out of Lefty's book um, and uh, all the knots, all the leaders, um, how to tie some flies. Uh, there was a lot of excellent information in that and uh, it was mainly just trying to find books and articles and, and reading was the main way of uh, trying to get information. And I guess you would have been uh, lucky that, um, like in America, they basically pioneered all the flats fishing, a lot of saltwater fly fishing. So to have information from people like Lefty Cray would have been um, a huge help for you back then. And even though we don't have the same species, we have some species that are similar, like the snooker, fairly similar to a barramundi and that sort of thing. So some of it would have been transferable, but yeah, there would have been a lot that you would have had to figure out. And I could imagine, yeah, compared to these days where we've got it pretty easy, you would have learned a lot and anyone that you met along the way to help you would have been a massive help. Yes, um, certainly there were probably half a dozen very keen fly anglers in Darwin back in those days and they ended up forming a club called the Darwin Fly Rodders Club and Graham White, um, famous for his pink thing, uh, was involved in that club in a big way. Um, I got a lot of good information from Graham on tying flies. Um, he he also um, he gave us a lot of good info on um, techniques and uh, different casting styles and things too. So um, there was quite a bit of help and uh, everyone that was involved in that club uh, was very keen and we were all just trying to, you know, sponge up information however we could, really. As you would have, because, yeah, it was all so new. Yeah. And that, that fly in particular, the pink thing, is such an iconic Australian fly, particularly for Barramundi. Um, so, yeah, like the actual um, the club is still quite active from what I believe. A few of my customers, they've moved down from Darwin and they're in the Darwin fly rotters. So it's good to see that it's still going strong after all these years. It is. Uh, it's been going a long time since those um, days in the early 70s or mid-70s. Um, I moved up there just after Cyclone Tracy uh, and it was uh, it was going then. So um, uh, the Territory uh, is famous for its sport fishing, obviously, and there's a lot of very keen anglers up there. Um, and there's quite a few, I don't know how many members they've got now, but uh, there's quite a few very keen fly fishermen in Darwin these days. Yeah. And so, so you started working for the local news channel. How did you progress from that into filming fishing and everything that you love, basically? So I believe in the 80s you did some work with Rod Harrison and Lefty Cray and that would have been a pretty pivotal moment in your career. Yes, in the, the 80s, um, 
I started doing a little bit of work with Rowan Harrison. I had, like a lot of other people, I had watched Malcolm Florence's shows. Uh, and because I was involved in the TV industry and um, I had a pretty good knowledge of how to put uh, documentaries together, um, I thought combining um, a passion for fishing and um, the, you know, the the knowledge I had in producing uh, TV programs uh, would be a, a great way of making a living. Uh, at the time, I didn't think I'd ever make a full-time living out of it, but um, we ended up in those days, um, we did a number of shows. The, the show we did with Lefty, uh, we visited the Northern Territory, the Kimberley, and went to New Guinea with him. Uh, the shooting time involved in that took about three weeks. Uh, so in that three weeks, uh, in my spare time, and Dean Butler was involved in that as well. He was my sound recordist at the time. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. So uh, Dean and I just got as much info as we could out of Lefty in those three weeks, and we were with him 24-7. Um, my fly casting certainly improved dramatically <laughs> Uh, during that period of time, uh, whenever we had any spare time at the end of the day, um, he'd give us tips on casting and help us with that sort of thing. And um, he was a very, and obviously, uh, uh, one of the best known uh, fly fishermen that's ever been around. Uh, and the information we gained through talking to him, um, you couldn't have got better info anyway. And uh, he, at the time... I remember asking him the question, uh, where's your favourite spot to fish in the world? And he said Belize. And I hadn't really heard much about Belize at that stage, but it always stuck in my mind. And I always thought if I ever get a, an opportunity to go there in Central America, um, then I should go and do it because if Lefty thinks it's the best place he's been fly fishing, then uh, it's got to be pretty good. Uh, but we had a great time. Uh, Lefty was a real gentleman. Um, he, he was uh, he would give all any knowledge at all. You know, he didn't hold back with anything, and um, that was a, a great learning curve for me. Actually, shooting that and producing that that particular show. Lefty Cray, like you hear any story um, involving Lefty, and it, it it's always about how good a teacher he is and how much knowledge he was happy to pass on. And it's, um, it's so good to have people like that in the sport, particularly in those early days. But it's amazing that even now his name gets brought up all the time, um, particularly by people like Flip Pallet and those who are really close to him. But um, I think the fly fishing community in a whole was so lucky to have Lefty. Absolutely. Um, no doubt about that. Um, he was a great ambassador for the sport. Um, he his knowledge and he was a very good teacher as well particularly when it came to uh, fly casting um i remember uh watching him cast just with the tip of a rod throwing a whole fly line so something most um, people struggle to do with a whole rod let alone a tip <laughs> exactly and he was just so relaxed um with his whole style of casting too and um he, he was certainly he, he could you couldn't have had a better person to uh, you know actually give you tips and uh, information on casting that's for sure that was interesting too that you had um 
Dean Butler on as your basically sound guy. So I had um, <laughs> Dean pop into the shop a few weeks ago and get some gear off me and had a quick chat to him. So he's going to come onto the podcast at a later stage and have a chat. And it is yes. great being able to reach out to people like yourself and Dean who have been there basically from the, the inception of sort of saltwater fly fishing in Australia. Um, just so much knowledge and, and just a willingness to pass it on, which is really good for blokes like myself that are coming up now. Yes, yeah, Dean and I had a, a great time. Uh, we are involved in shooting. Uh, well, he was uh, helping me record sound on a number of those shows back in those days. Uh, and his love of fly fishing uh, is similar to mine. We still catch up. In fact, uh, he was going to be here a week ago. He's not very well at the moment. Um, but uh, we usually catch up and we've had some great fishing around here recently and uh, just had a great time catching up and he loves his flats fishing and loves his permit fishing in particular. Yeah, he'd be itching to get back up to see you and then go see the guys in Weeper again. <laughs> yes, yeah, he was um, due to head up that way, but I think uh, everything's just been put on hold a bit at the moment. He's uh, been in intensive care, actually. Oh, so, Hopefully he gets better soon. Uh, I was only talking to him a couple yes. of weeks ago and passed on my well wishes. Yeah. So, we'll, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll send that out there and hopefully he's back with a fishing rod in his hand soon. Yep. So um, from the 80s, you've basically gone on to your next project was the Wildfish series, which was a massive thing in Australia. It was um, primetime TV on SBS, which was probably unheard of at that time. Yes, uh, Peter Morse and I got together and um, Peter's wife had a very good contact at SBS at the time. Um, and Peter and I had discussed trying to get a series up and running and uh, it was a very difficult thing to do in those days. Uh, there were very few, um, and at the time, I think Rex Hunt was probably the only TV show that was around. Um, and we were lucky enough to, uh, we went to a meeting at SBS and explained what we'd like to do, and we ended up shooting a pilot. Um, the pilot show was shot up in the New England area, actually, trout fishing, Um and because of SBS's charter, we had to also include um, some of the locals in it and it, it couldn't just be a, a pure fishing show. We had to show the local areas and uh, talk to the local people and give people a bit of a feel for what it would be like to visit those areas A bit as of history well. and culture and that sort of thing involved. Yes. Yep. So uh, it ended up working out really well. Um, we put the pilot together and they accepted it. And initially um, we got a, uh, they got us to do a series of 13 shows and that was done over a 12 month period. Uh, we got to visit, we chose the locations. So um, Norsi and I sat down and basically said, well, where do we want to go? <laughs> Half your luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh it, there was a lot of fly fishing in it. Um, we had to, because uh, some of our sponsors were involved uh, with other products as well, we had to include a bit of lure fishing and a little bit of everything. Um, but it certainly featured a lot of fly fishing and uh, we ended up visiting some great locations. Um, the show uh, was very successful. Uh, it was actually, it rated... At the time, it was the best rating show on SBS and uh, it was rating against Seinfeld, which was on at uh, 7.30 on Tuesday night. That's a so massive that, achievement then because Seinfeld, like particularly in the States, is huge and even yeah. over here, like they still play reruns on TV. 
Yes, yeah. So uh, it, it went really well. It was well, really well received and uh, they ended up um, getting us to do another 13 actually. So there were 26 half hours in all um, and that was shot over another 12 months and it was sold overseas and um, we put it out on DVD and um, uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, I know people still certainly remember it and um, still let me know every now and then that they've still got DVD copies and uh, they still watch it occasionally. Well, so. I actually sold a full set of the DVDs to a customer or to his wife actually earlier in the year. Um, yeah. It was his birthday and she wanted to get him something special and he'd always yeah. watch bits and pieces or he remembered it from then. Um, so she got yeah. him the whole DVD collection and he was absolutely stoked, came back in the shop to thank me and, yeah, he was ecstatic about it. Yeah, it's uh, it was very popular, that's for sure. And uh, it was interesting, even thinking back uh, when we initially started with Rod Harrison, uh, everything was on VHS back in those days. <clears throat> and um, the VHSs, are, I'm pretty sure we were selling them for about $50 each. Yeah, right. So it was <laughs> so, good money back uh, then, isn't it? And we were selling a lot of them. So um, when we ended up uh, doing the SBS series, part of the deal was that we uh, we had the rights to sell the VHSs. Um, and at the end of every show, the phones used to just run hot. Um, we, we probably made as much out of selling the VHSs as we did out of uh, producing the series because uh, it was very different in those days. Um, I don't know how some of the young guys um, do it now because they've got to actually, most of them have got to pay for airtime with the TV networks um, and they've got to get sponsor, enough sponsorship dollars to cover their production costs. And there's also well so, as, so many free videos out there now with YouTube and streaming platforms like that that exactly, it'd be hard to, exactly. um, hard to compete with that when someone's going out there in their own time using their own dollars, boats, gear. Um, and they're producing yeah. something of pretty good quality, like yeah. these days with drones and GoPros. So, yes, yeah, it's it's it would be very hard competing uh, trying to do it these days. Um, YouTube made a huge difference to all of that. We we used to get paid by the network to produce um, the series, and then we'd get overseas sales on top of that. Um, and we had. Um, uh, some fairly major sponsors involved in it as well. So um, we, we did okay out of it. We didn't make millions of dollars, but we did okay out of it and uh, made a reasonable living, but it's very different these days. Yeah, I can and imagine too we, then, you'd like even the gear you use, the cameras and the sound equipment would have been pretty basic yeah. compared to now, so it would have been a lot yeah. more work involved. Very basic. Um, most of the cameras that I used... Uh, weighed about 13 kilos, which is why I've now got back problems. <laughs> I've spent most of my life walking around with one of those on my right-hand shoulder. Um, very basic gear. Uh, if if we There were no drones, obviously. We had to hire helicopters, and that was quite an expensive process. Um, underwater cameras uh, were expensive and cumbersome. Uh, there were no GoPros, nothing like that. Um, the editing and the gear in those days, uh, the cameras I used to use, um, they, they were worth over 100 grand each, just the camera alone. Uh, the lens was worth 30 grand. Um, so you had to be, um, there's no way you could be buying that sort of gear now and making a profit. Um, it's just so difficult competing 
you know. Yeah. So you had to uh, make a reasonable amount out of it to be able to afford to buy the gear. We had our own production company. Um, the edit suite I had set up was, uh, again, incredibly expensive to record or a record machine and a play machine. And um, the we'd have to go and get dissolves and special effects done at another production company. You couldn't just sit there. Uh, everything we can do on a on my laptop now. And that's it. Now uh, you can is, travel with a laptop, a, a decent digital yeah. camera, or even your iPhone, a GoPro. You can film yeah. everything yourself, edit it. There's free music on the internet that you can get. Um, exactly. So back then, like anyone sort of pioneering a lot of that stuff on TV, it was a massive workload and a massive investment. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it was, um, but uh, it was well worth it. I mean, we uh, the workload alone, um, at one stage I was doing the editing as well as all the, the shooting, and it got to the point where I had to, uh, we had seven staff at one stage when it was really pumping and things were going, going well. Um, but massive workload, the, the editing time, um, the music in those days, as you mentioned, we had to get a musician to actually uh, record music tracks for us to use. So there was uh, no internet, none of that stuff at all. Yeah, right. Uh, very different and very different when it, even in the earlier days when I was shooting on 16 mil, um, going from that to tape and then going from that transitioning through to digital was just a massive jump. Uh, and a lot of guys that were editing back then just dropped out along the wayside because it would be hard if, used to, if you didn't keep your finger on the pulse with technology as it progressed, you could fall behind quite yeah. quickly. Yeah, you, you had to really keep up with the latest uh, gear that was out all the time. We used to edit on a Steinbeck machine with a razor blade. We'd cut the film with a razor blade and stick it together with glue. You know, that's what it was like in the early yeah, that's days. That's where your cut so, and paste term comes from. <laughs> Exactly. And if you look at your editing systems now, they've still got the little icons. They've got the razor blade and things that we used to use back in those days. So uh, it's been a, I've seen a huge change uh, since the early days. I started in the industry in the early 70s, in 1972 or 71, I think I started uh, in the film department at Channel O in Brisbane. So um, yeah, it, there's been a massive change in that, in media and how things are put together, that's for sure. And out of that Wildfish series, where do you think were some of the most memorable places that you and Morsi travelled and fished? We had some great trips. Um, we had a trip to New Zealand uh, with Rob Sitch, uh, <laughs> which was interesting actually because I used to watch Frontline and um, I knew of Rob Sitch, but I got a phone call out of the blue one day and... Um, the fellow on the other end of the phone said, oh, good day, it's Rob Sitch. Um, I'm a really keen fly fisherman. I was wondering if I might be able to come along and on one of your shows. And uh, at the time, his name just didn't click. And uh, I said, I'll oh, give us your name. I'll write your number down and I'll get back to you, uh, not realising who it was. <laughs> and uh, straight after that, I had the executive producer from SBS actually uh, ring me and she was talking about something else. And I said, do you know a guy by the name of Rob Sitch? He's just rung me and he wants to come on one of our shows. And she said, who? <laughs> and I, I told her who it was and she said, oh, ring him back straight away and get him on the show, you know. So we ended up um, and then I realised, oh, shit, that's who it is. <laughs> um, 
he ended up coming on a, a shoot with us in New Zealand had a great time um, and uh, had some great fishing and we had a couple of trips to New Zealand. I love my trout fishing. I used to do an annual trip to uh, New Zealand quite often with Morsi and he loves his trout fishing too. And uh, we had a couple of great shoots over there. Um, just trying to think of other. Was it mainly the South Island that you were fishing over there, or mainly the South Island? We did do a shoot in the North Island as well yep. um, on a little stream called the Waimarino, which runs into the the Tongariro. Eventually, yep. um, uh, had some great fishing there, and of course. Uh, I'd always make sure there were a few days uh, at the end of every shoot uh, where we could just go and relax yeah, and have you, a fish. You could actually put the camera so, down and get involved exactly. and unwind a little bit. Yeah. So I had some great fishing in some of the best locations for some of the best species. Um, and again, because we were uh, basically involved, or we were in charge of where we went, what we did, so we could pick the very best locations. We had some great shoots in the Northern Territory as well. Um, I guess anywhere in North to... Queensland and up in the Territory, because it was so uncharted back then, um, little pressure and yeah, you, the fishing would have just been out of this world. Yes, we, we had a couple of shoots in Weeper as well. Uh, North Queensland has always been my number one favourite place to live and, and fish. Um, and uh, we, we had quite a few shoots in North Queensland. Um, the area we're living in here at the moment, um, I hadn't spent a lot of time in back then, but uh, it's certainly proven to be a, a great flats fishery and uh, we've got some great barra fishing here as well now. So, yeah, we, yeah, we certainly got to go to a lot of uh, great locations all over Australia, New Zealand, Tassie, had some great shoots in Tasmania. On trout, and then once and, the uh, wildlife uh, wildfish series finished up, your next major project was you did was it four seasons with Escape with ET with Andrew Eddinghausen? Yeah, it was about four and a half years. Uh, we initially, Peter, my wife, and I um, uh, went down had a meeting with John Dumphy actually and ET and uh, Fox. His show started off on, um, and he got his show up and running. And we were basically the production company for the first, uh, well, in those early days, we did all the post-production as well. So um, Peter, my wife, was doing the location sound and I was doing all the camera work. Uh, initially, I was doing some of the editing as well, but it just started getting out of control. It was, um, the workload was huge and we were on the road. Um, in the end, we're on the road uh, pretty much seven days a week quite often. Um, You've done well so, to find a wife that's um, happy to carry the boom around all that time and get dragged <laughs> to all these fishing locations. <laughs> yeah, I'm very lucky. She she actually really enjoys that sort of thing. She loves travelling um, and she loves the outdoors. So it, it wasn't uh, – she, she enjoyed it. You know, it wasn't uh, something she was having to endure. Uh, and, and we both loved those years that we were travelling and doing that and working together and uh, being able to travel together um, is a rare thing, really. You know, quite often early days, most of the time I was travelling on my own with a, a sound recordist and um, um, it, it was a very different experience, you know, travelling with her and uh, enjoying the same things. So, it would have been a real life yeah. changer and something that would be pretty, like, special to, um, like, enjoy with your partner. So, yeah. Absolutely, uh, and we had some great trips. Um, 
Uh, we had a trip to South Africa and shot an hour special uh, for Channel 9 at the time uh, as part of ET's show. Um, and uh, we had trips to New Caledonia and New Guinea and all over the place. So, um, yeah, th- those four years were very special. Um, it got to the point where I guess um, we were we were just uh, getting burnt out, you know. We were really uh, um, not getting much of a break and that's when I started thinking about the fishing DVD actually and one of the things uh, I realised, I guess, from being involved in some of the TV shows and what we were doing in Wildfish, um, that anglers at the time weren't getting the information they were really craving. Um, so I had in the back of my head, if we could come up with something that gave good information, was a quality um, production and uh, had some good you know, fishing in it as well, um, it would probably go well. And that's when we came up with the idea of the fishing DVD. And uh, it was a risk at the time. Nobody had done anything like that. And uh, I I remember one of my mates saying to me, you're going to do your money, mate, because there was quite a bit of expense involved in producing the first one. Um, we actually put uh, the first DVD out on the covers of a couple of print magazines just to get a bit of an idea of uh, what the reaction might be. And the reaction was massive and the, the print magazines wanted us to continue doing that. And I, I, uh, I really wanted to have control of the whole thing myself and not be at the whim of um, um, the magazines, I guess. So we decided... Uh, with the second episode, we would just put it out through the news agents ourselves with an A4 backing board like a magazine but on DVD, uh, which is what we did. And that's when I was told uh, by a number of people uh, uh, it, it was quite an expense because we had to get all the uh, replication done with the DVDs in those days, uh, large numbers, um, the production costs of shooting it. Anyway, uh, yeah, you don't... Uh, I, I've always thought, you know, you, you don't get anywhere if you don't give it a go. So we did, and it was very successful. I remember we done we did our sums, and we thought if we sell around five thousand uh, initially with that one, then we'll break even. Um, and we sold seven and a half thousand, I think. So that's excellent. It went from there to uh, I think when it, for a long time there we were outselling some of the print magazines. Certainly our sales were right up there with the best print magazines. Um, we, we had sales of, um, I think, just through the news agents, we were selling 25000 an episode. Uh, we were doing production runs or replication runs of 100000 a year. So, um, And it really was, it was it, such a progressive DVD as well. Like I remember my mates and I, when we were younger, we'd ride our push bike down to the local news agent, get a copy and we couldn't wait to watch it. And there were so many new yeah. um, fisheries or like even if there's new yeah. techniques coming out, um, even if it wasn't fly fishing, if it was lure fishing, it was like, yes. yeah, for its time, um, yeah. it really showed a lot of people, a lot of things. And I remember we used to play it in store and yeah, customers just loved it. Yeah, it was very popular, that's for sure. And um, at the time, um, it it went really well for us. We were very lucky to have some uh, great and very uh, uh, skilled anglers working with us and well-known ones, Steve Starling, Peter Morse. Um, 
Bargy as well. Big, yeah. uh, absolutely, Bargy. There are a lot of guides that were, uh, and I, I won't even try and name them all because I'll leave some yeah. out probably, but um, we work with the very best guides in the country, all over the country. Um, and what we came up with was if we cover a wide range of fishing, so we had a fly segment, we had a bait fishing segment, we had some lure fishing segments, um, from whiting through to marlin, basically, then we would get most anglers in the country buying it. And uh, that's what we did, and it worked very well. And the people we had um, presenting knew their stuff. You know, they, they were experts So at what they did, and they knew those locations so well that uh, they passed on some really good information to people. And I think that's uh, what really... Um, you know, that's one of the reasons it was so successful. Yeah, especially when you have people that sort of pioneered a lot of fisheries on there too, like even having um, Sid yeah. Boschhammer. So here in Harvey yes. Bay being one of the first guides, him and Dean Butler um, put a lot of work yeah. into the flats fishery here. Um, I'm fortunate to know quite a few of the people that appeared on the show and, yeah, the, um, the information that they passed on was invaluable and it still gets talked about today. And I think you can even still watch it on Fish Flicks on, on the internet. It is on fish flicks. Yep. In fact, wildfish is on there too, and and quite a bit of our old production work is on fish flicks. Um, so anyone wanting to watch it now, that's the the easiest and best way of, of watching it. Um, but if you get on there and have a look, uh, there isn't much of our older stuff that isn't on there. So uh, it's good that um, there's a little bit of history there, I guess, in some of those. And, yeah, well, um, certainly preserved, it, um, preserved the history. And that's, that's actually great to know that Wildfish is on there because I still get people asking about the Wildfish DVDs. Yeah. Um, and after I sold that last complete set, um, I wasn't sure how they'd be able to access it. So I'm glad I know that now. Yes, Wildfish is still on there. In fact, I did some editing for uh, Flyfish International yesterday uh, to go with an article I've done on Permit. And uh, I was going through the footage and uh, I came across the footage of Alan Phyllis Kirk catching what was at the time the first uh, fly caught sight fish uh, permit on the flats in Australia. Um, there had been a couple of other permit caught. I think Paul Dolan might have got one in Harvey Bay, yep. um, but it, it wasn't in shallow water on the flats and sight cast from what I can gather. Um, and uh, Greg Bethune, I think, caught one. Um, more by accident than anything. He had a bit of a cluster in his fly line. He was untangling it. Yep. And when he started stripping it back in, he had a permit on. So um, fish, um, and I've just put some of that footage in in a clip I've done for Fly Fish International. Um, but there's a little bit of history there and it was, you know, it was interesting watching it again after... Um, I think it was something like maybe 30 years yeah, since yeah. we shot, oh, well, over 20 years anyway, since we shot that. And seeing how techniques have changed, the reel he was using didn't have a drag, he's using the palm of his hand. So um, uh, fly fishing gear has changed. Um, I guess the one thing that is, has stayed the same is permitter still pricks at times and they um, won't always eat a fly. <laughs> Absolutely, that'll never change. Um, yeah, that's that's what they're like, unfortunately. That particular morning, uh, uh, and fish must have had 100 casts at those fish and didn't get a no interest at all. And then suddenly one just decided to eat fish as fly, so and that's what they're like. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was uh, it was interesting watching 
some of that footage. I think I remember and, a story uh, you told me about Bargy when he first um, started fly fishing going on about how he was going to just go out and get a permit. And what was it, four <laughs> years later or something like that, he finally got one? <laughs> uh, it was it was quite a long time. <laughs> I think at the time he said, I'll have one within a month. And I thought, oh, good luck with that. Um, and, and Bargy and I spent a lot of time running up and down the coast here looking for flats and um, trying to work out where we might catch them on the east coast of Queensland. Um, he caught one in Harvey Bay. Um, he ended up landing one there at, um, uh, it was near one of the islands there in the bay on one of the flats there. Um, and we caught quite a few in this area I'm in now. We ended up um, coming up here and uh, did a lot of research, did a lot of driving, spent a lot of time on the water. Um, pretty much looking at Google Earth, where the good flats are that were protected from southeasters, uh, that didn't get netted by commercial nets, all of those sort of things came into it. And uh, we narrowed it down a fair bit. And uh, where I am now is certainly one of the, the great areas for catching permit on the flats, no doubt about that. So we've got you there now, and then Bargy's living up in Weeper now and running one of the premier fly fishing um, charters in the country. So taken over yes. from Alan Phillipskirk. I was talking to Alan Philiskirk yesterday and I think he said Bargy's got four boats now. So Yeah, well, one of my mates, he, um, Kurt, just started guiding for him. So he's up there at the moment yeah. and he's having a ball. Yep. He's absolutely loving it. So. Yeah, yeah, it's a great area. And uh, certainly as far as permit go, that uh, west coast of Cape York is one of the best as well. Um, I've been up there and I did a couple of trips with him and uh, we had some fantastic fishing up there. They've got so many options too, like you've got all the flats, yeah. but then you've got some amazing barrow rivers like the Wenlock. Um, the Wenlock is such an amazing system there. I was blown away when we were there in September yeah. last year. But they've got so many options with species and they've also got all the freshwater stuff for toga and sooties and it's yeah. just a magic spot. It is, absolutely. Uh, uh, of any... If you're looking at tropical fly fishing, then um, certainly Weeper's right up there. I mean, Weeper, Exmouth, um, some of the areas around here are up there with it as well, I believe. Yep. Um, I try and fly under the radar a little bit here. <laughs> I've got my own little spots I like and uh, I still love my fly fishing. So, And I guess that's um, one of the hard things these days too. Like you want to promote an area but you don't want to promote it to death to the point where everyone wants to go there and move there because then all of a sudden it's no longer untouched and remote it's always been a difficult thing and it's always something that when we were traveling even back uh, back in the rod harrison days we were very much aware of um not saying anything or giving anything away that um the, the guides or the locals didn't want us to. Um, obviously, um, the guides, and it's a very, as a guide, speaking as a guide myself, it's a very difficult thing to do uh, to promote an area and yet um, not have it spoilt. And it is very easy to spoil an area. Um, and these days with GoPros and YouTube, uh, there are a lot of areas that I used to fish that I wouldn't even bother fishing anymore, to be honest. And it's a sad thing that it happens and people need to be aware uh, aware of it. Um, it doesn't take much to, to spoil a place and um, it, it's very difficult these days to find an area that hasn't had a fair bit of fishing pressure. Uh, even when you're travelling to Cape York and places like that um, uh, with four-wheel drives and Google Earth and uh, with boats these days, 
Um, there aren't too many areas left that aren't getting And there's a so fair much more bitumen pressure. turning up as well. Like it used to be dirt roads all the way and I was amazed exactly. on our trip how much of it yeah, is sealed now. So it's only going to get more yeah. and more over time. Um, I guess, yep. yeah, they say it's progress, but in some things it's probably a step backwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember in the early days in the Territory, I had a little short wheelbase land cruiser and uh, I, I used to get, I had a mud map drawn by a geologist to a place where he'd caught a heap of barren money. And I I spent ages trying to find this place and there was, during the wet season, uh, the track would disappear and then you'd have to find your way back in there. And no one else had ever fished some of those areas back then. And I guess Dean Butler and I and Fish and Morsi have all, you know, when we've been talking now that we're getting older, uh, have said how lucky we are to have fished some of these areas that, literally had never been fished before um, and how hard it is now to find somewhere like that. I've, I've found a place um, not too far inland from here just recently. It's taken me two years to... Uh, I've been looking for something like it where I can just go and have a fish and know that it hasn't had much pressure and um, there's some excellent fishing there up in the fresh water and I just thought how lucky I was to be in a place like that. Uh, there were no other footprints. Um, it was a real mission to get in there, and I'm not getting any younger. I had to walk down a gorge and climb back up a mountain, but I had fishing. I would be very surprised if the fish there have ever seen a fly before until I went down there and probably never seen a lure, actually, um, and had a, a wonderful day's fishing, sooties and tarpon and barra, sight fishing and a, a jacks. Uh, and there was a jack there that would have been at least 50 centimetres right up in the fresh water, uh, gin clear water. And finding something like that these days uh, is very special. And uh, if I ever take anyone in there, I'd have to get them to to swear on the Bible, I think, that they would never tell anyone else where they Well, they are. might have a pair of concrete boots on at the end. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of those but, things these days. You do yeah. have to, um, like it's good about teaching people and showing them things, but yeah. certain fisheries and that they are so sensitive to pressure that you have to keep those little spots to yourself. And I think people need to realise that they can't sort of get the shits basically that Everyone these days, you put up a photo and 30 seconds later, oh, where'd you catch that? Yeah. And it's not that you're being yeah. a prick by not telling them, yeah. but at the same time, yeah. sometimes you have to work something out for yourself or you've got to yeah. like persist and fish with other people that are doing the same sort of thing as you before you can actually do that. Exactly. It's a fine line and people have just got to understand that. And I think when they mature more and they're fishing, they'll realise why. Um, I've had people asking me for GPS, you know, for a Latin long, and there's no way I'm, I'm going to do that. Yep. Um, and it's probably just so yeah, they can get a like on Facebook or Instagram, and it's not about that. Yeah, it should be about yeah. the fishing, preserving the fishery and the fish. Exactly. Um, even when I'm even when I'm guiding, I'm very aware of it. I'd um, particularly when I was in Rockhampton, I guided there for a couple of years. Uh, and that fishery has had a lot of pressure. Um, there's some excellent fishing there. In fact, as far as barra fisheries go on the East Coast, it's it's right up there. And I guess they're lucky in the um, sense that it's a, a net-free um, zone now, so um, you're not having that commercial element as well. Absolutely. That's made a massive difference. Uh, the numbers of fish that are in that system now, um, it's pretty much 
back to the way it would have been uh, before white people arrived here. I think there are so many big barra in that system. Uh, but those fish, uh, I, I've said it, they're the best educated barra in the country. Um, they've seen nearly every lure known to man. And um, I know at times we'd pull up and we'd have the sounder on and you'd be sitting on a school of barra. As soon as a vibe would drop down amongst them, they'd all just move away from it. Yeah. And um, the, the fish learn very quickly. And I know um, early days in New Guinea, Dean and I uh, fished a lot of areas up there that had never been fished before. You know, the local villages and people there told us nobody had ever fished with lures there before. Uh, the women used to catch little fish the men didn't bother and they weren't interested in the New Guinea bass and the big barra because the, the gear they had would have just broken and they wouldn't have landed them. Um, but some of those areas uh, that we were fishing back in those days, um, I found the same thing in the Territory too. You'd go in there, you'd fish it one day and, of course, we were releasing all the fish. You'd drift down a river, you'd fish the same snags and you'd go back two or three days in a row. The first day you might catch 100 fish. The second day you might catch 20 or 30. And the third day you might catch three or four. Yeah. And it might get to the point where you don't catch any. And we proved it so many times. Uh, we were The fish were still there. Uh, the fish hadn't gone they anywhere. They just wised up. But, oh, they wise up very quickly. And some species wise up a lot faster than others. Yeah. Um, there was one place in the Territory that I used to fish. The same thing would happen. We'd go there for three or four days. Um, we were releasing all the fish. The fish were still in there. Um, the numbers of fish would just decrease each day. Uh, it was only a very small system, uh, but those fish learned very quickly what was going on. And um, there's a couple of rivers in New Britain that we fished um, that had never been fished before. And as a guide now, being aware of that, and I know when I went to Rockhampton, I was very much aware of it. Um, we used to, and uh, Nathan Johnson, who took over the business there and uh, is doing very He's well there now Nathan. too. Yeah, we had dinner with him he when we is. stayed with you and, yeah, super yeah, nice bloke. Yeah. And he's going really well with that business now, but he's aware of it. Uh, the smarter guides, people will catch, you know, if they catch three or four fish out of a school, then you really shouldn't just keep hammering that school, you know. Those fish learn so quickly and a lot of the better guides will just move. They'll have their set spots that they move to and they won't keep hammering those same fish all the time. Um, and you've really got to start doing that because if you do keep hitting the same schools really hard, and unfortunately, um, if I go out for a day's fishing and I come back and if somebody was to ask me and say, did you have a good day? Um, nine times out of 10, I'll say I had a fantastic day. And for me, it's the whole experience. It's not about catching a hundred fish. And I think a lot of younger anglers these days, they'll realize as they get on um, that they should be doing this. I, I know, particularly with tournaments, um, a lot of people want to catch large numbers of fish and they don't believe they've had a good day unless they've caught a cricket score of fish. Yeah. Um, but for me, that's not what fishing's about. And I think the more and more fish get pressured these days, the more people have got to realize and understand that 
if you catch two or three fish out of one school, for instance, move on and, and go and try for another species or find another school of barry. You know, don't keep hitting the same school all the it's time, almost, particularly if you... It's almost like fishing schooling bass. Like there's no fun in staying on the one big school or somewhere like Somerset exactly. and whacking 50 fish off the one school. Like, exactly. you know, they're feeding. Why not move and try and figure something else out? Yeah. After half a dozen fish using the same method, well, I start getting bored. You know, yeah. I start thinking, well, how else can I catch them? Or maybe I can go and catch them in the shallows or somewhere else, try something different. I think the hardest uh, thing these think- days is, especially with um, social media, there is such a big thing about people think they have to be catching huge amount of fish or the biggest yes. fish, and it becomes a bit yep. of a competition. But at the end of the day, if you really love fishing, it should be about being outside, like enjoying the fresh air enjoying what you're seeing as well like sometimes for me being out on the boat especially on the flats like you might see the dugongs go yeah. past or some massive turtles yeah. and it's just a nice yeah. day on the water um and i think Absolutely. people sometimes forget that that it's not just about catching the most fish or the biggest fish yeah um it's just about being in the outdoors and enjoying a great pastime yep that's uh, it's very true and i know with my guiding um i i try and give people a really good all-round experience so that they enjoy the whole experience and enjoy the whole day. You know, they, they enjoy seeing the wildlife. Um, it, it's and, and you have tough days sometimes, you know. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. You can go to the best location in the world and, and have a donut day. Yep. Uh, it happens. It's fishing. Um, but enjoying everything about it. And um, I think people have got to uh, move away a little bit from the, the large number cricket score thing, uh, particularly in the future. You know, you've got to uh, realise those fish learn very quickly and you're just making it harder for yourself in the long run. Um, but that's just, uh, I guess, I'm getting to the stage now where I'm looking back and, and seeing what it used to be like in the old days. And uh, I was as bad as anyone when I was younger. I used to want to catch as many fish as possible, you know. And um, I've realised, I guess, as I get older that um, it is the whole experience as well as it, it's nice to catch, you know, have a, a day where you do catch quite a few fish. But um, it's not just about catching large numbers of fish you know that's uh, and i guess that's, for me if that's the thing is like learning and growing as an angler um initially when yeah. you're younger something sort of you just want to catch the most fish and the biggest fish but yeah um yeah i think it's definitely like even looking back for you where you've fished some of the most incredible places around australia and the world but it is good that you can look at it now and go well maybe no we should be moving to this school and um, yeah. it's definitely not yeah. a bad thing so yeah i think um I don't know how it's going to happen. I mean, you've seen Harvey Bay from the early days and I know what it was like, the Goldie fishery there in the early days when Sid was guiding there. And uh, I think governments and people now have really got to start. Uh, People have have got to somehow make them realise that um, a lot of what's going on isn't sustainable and um, there needs to be uh, some, some good fisheries management done as well. You know, that's... Uh, I believe it's lacking in Queensland. I think uh, there could be uh, the fishery here could be managed a lot better than it is. I think the hard thing too is we've got, um, like you compare it to places like the Florida Keys and yes, they've got a massive population of fishermen there, but over here, it's almost like it's too hard for people to stand up and say something or to sign a petition or to stomp their foot. Yeah. And you look over there yeah, and they're doing so much to preserve fisheries and yeah. try and improve water quality. So I think we really yeah. need to get better at that in this country. 
Yeah, I've seen it overseas. Um, in fact, I did a trip to Belize with Bargi and uh, not long their their fishery is managed really really well this is a third world country and their sport fishery is managed as well as any anywhere in the world um you're not allowed to and in florida now you're not allowed to lift a big tarpon out of the water you've got to keep it in the water you've got to look after it release it um and then uh, after being in belize where we had seen all of this going on and uh, how well it was managed uh, and other places too, like uh, Christmas Island. Um, I came back and it was within a week of coming back from Belize. Uh, we were living on the Sunshine Coast at the time and a massive school of permit was netted on the North Shore at Noosa. And uh, I wrote an article in the, the local paper and uh, mentioned that I'd just come back from a third world country that had better fisheries management than we've got here in Queensland and the government and fisheries don't realise the value of those fish that were left sitting in the back of a ute in the sun. I don't know what they did with them, but I wouldn't have been eating them after the way they'd been looked after and crushed in the net. Um, and the, the editor took half of what I, I wrote out of the what I'd written because he didn't want to offend or upset anyone. But sometimes you've just got to stand up and, and you know, make people realise um, that it isn't sustainable and they need to understand. And I've tried and I, I've, yeah, I know how difficult it is talking to politicians about the value of recreational fishing. Um, they just don't understand it. I, I had dinner with one one night and the whole idea was to have a chat to him about what was happening in Harvey Bay, actually. And uh, at the time, after trying to explain what the guides were doing and the recreational fishing was worth and what the value was of those goldies and other fish up there, he said to me, oh, the price of scallops has gone up recently, hasn't it? <laughs> he, and he hadn't really listened to or understood anything I'd said and yet his wife had yeah. and then she started asking me questions but he didn't want to know about it. Um, Falls in the so, too hard basket unfortunately. Yeah but anyway we've still got a wonderful fishery you know it's but it, it needs a bit of management in the future and people have got to uh, realise that um, it's not the fishery uh, and I guess it all comes back to catching large numbers and things too when you look at the overall thing you know the um the fish are there uh if you start putting too much pressure on them or if it's not managed properly they won't be there in the future and a lot of places that used to have exceptionally good fishing uh, you're now struggling to catch a fish so i know my kids um they come up here and have a fish with me they love my two boys love uh, fly fishing but it was becoming very hard in some areas that I used to fish in um, to take them there and expect to actually catch any fish you know it had got to that stage so we've just got to look at the future and um, yeah. and yeah, I, I think in certain aspects in we've come a long way like a lot of the um, kill and grill mentality um, is starting to wane a little bit now and people are getting a lot yeah. better with the catch and release thing. Like I, I don't have any issue with taking a feed of fish and that sort of thing, but yeah. you don't need to be filling an esky every time. And I think the next thing is people need to start getting a little bit of um, like fish handling and um, like practices like that. 
Um, unfortunately, yeah. you see some YouTube and yeah, bloody Instagram stars that they photograph a fish to death. To you can look at the color of the fish and tell that they're yeah. bloody stone dead cold. Yeah. Um, so exactly. I think that's another thing that people need to get better at yeah. as well. Like the fish's health is the number one priority. Getting a photo is the second priority. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. In fact, I saw a a TV show um, that was on a few years ago. Uh, where the presenter let the fish go and it, while he was talking on the camera after letting it go, it was floating belly up behind him. So, um, yeah, there needs to be a lot of education or uh, a bit of education in handling fish and um, uh, making sure they go back. If you're going to release it, uh, it, you want it to swim off and survive. You don't want it to go belly up. Uh, a lot of fish, uh, threadies, big threadies, have issues with their, their bladder. Their bladder. Barotrauma is a fairly big issue too with Jewfish. And again, if you catch one or two for a feed, then move away and go and do something else. You know, don't keep catching them if that's going to be a problem and they start uh, floating off belly up and not surviving. So all of those things just need to be things people think about in the future, I think. And uh, yeah. we've still got a wonderful fishery here in Australia. We're very fortunate compared uh, to other countries and that sort of thing. Circling back yep. to um, back to Belize, I remember seeing some photos of a very drunk bargy smoking a cigar after catching his tarpon. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit yep. more about that trip? Uh, it was a, a great trip. As I said earlier, uh, Lefty told me it was his favourite fly fishing location in the world. And uh, I mentioned that to Bargy one night. Uh, we were having a rum or two and uh, Denise, his wife, and Pete, my wife, were there and... Uh, we, we sort of had a bit of a look and, at where it was and what it was like and thought that would be a great destination. Uh, let's, you know, put a few dollars together and see if we can get over there and have a holiday. Yep. And at that time uh, I hadn't had a break for quite a long time and we were, were due for a break and we ended up, um, I don't think Denise had ever flown on a plane before or she'd only had one flight or something in Queensland. And it, so it was a huge adventure and experience um, for all of us. Uh, we ended up flying to LA and um, landed at the airport there and we're going through customs uh, to get the plane to Belize. And um, in front of us, um, two policemen ran out with their handguns, pointed at a fellow and had him with his hands up against a wall and uh, that was as soon as we'd walked through customs uh, and Buggy just looked at me and I said, welcome to the US, mate. This is what it's like over here. But that was the start of the trip and we had a great trip. Um, the girls, you know, wives really enjoyed themselves and Buggy and I had some fantastic fishing and uh, what Lefty had said about the place uh, was absolutely true. Uh, and as I said, they managed their fishery very well, very professional guides. Um, we had some great fun catching uh, big tarpon. Um, Bargy hooked one that was, the guide said, 180, 200 pound, and he got spooled on uh, one of the, it, it was one of the T-bores he had. I think he had 600 metres of backing, and he got spooled, uh, hit the knot, and <laughs> the guide, uh, they don't like, they, they pole, and they don't like following the fish. They like to dead boat them. And um, Bargy was yelling and screaming up the front, saying, I'm running out of line, running out of line. And he did. And uh, his leader popped off. But um, he, he, he caught some nice fish, 
and there was one there that was very close to 100 pound i'd say i got a couple of good ones um i caught some permit as well we caught a heap of bonefish it was just a wonderful trip and um anywhere over there at the end of that we'd go out first thing in the morning with the guide we'd have some great tarpon fishing all sight fishing on shallow clear flats sandy bottom we'd come back uh, mid-afternoon sit down have a couple of rums or mojitos and then go for a walk up the beach and catch half a dozen bonefish and uh, there'd be permit tailing it you know <laughs> along the edge of the beach. it was just an amazing it's god's trip. country uh, absolutely um so we had some great fishing um i came back through florida buggy had to come home i think he had some guiding or some work booked um and i had some great fishing in florida too so um yeah that was a very memorable trip yeah and uh, it, it was nice fishing in florida it's really the home of saltwater flats fishing yeah, especially and, around isla Mirada and places like that yeah, we stayed in Isla Mirada and went down to Key West and saw all of those places, uh, went to Hemingway's old house and uh, saw his old boat and uh, all that sort of stuff. So it was, yeah, it was an amazing I'm experience. looking forward to getting over there and doing the same thing, like just being immersed in the culture and fishing yeah. will just be a bonus. Yeah. I think just walking around and going to all those iconic yep. places, it'll be yeah, a special moment for sure. Fantastic place. If you can get over there, well worth Definitely well worthwhile. Have a talk to Jared Boshammer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm planning <laughs> so, on trying to get him on the podcast at some stage. And also yeah. Sid, his old man. Sid and I actually yes. have to get back around to um, we were going to try and organise a trip fishing here in the river with the canoes and do like a couple of night trips. So I've got to pick up the phone yeah. and get in touch with him again. So, But you've yeah. had some great trips with Morsi overseas too. You did New Caledonia, didn't you? Chasing giant bones over there. and We did. We've had a few trips. Um we had a, a yeah we had a really good trip over there we went to a little island uh, it's just a little atoll off the, the main island uh, Morsi had been there before it was an interesting story actually and he'd gone to see the village chief it's a little bit like New Guinea yep. um, and when you get to the outer islands you've got to have permission from the local people to fish there um, and he said oh it'll be fine I've got permission from the chief we'll go up there and see him so we went up there and we hired a car drove all the way up to the other end of the island and to find that the chief had passed away a couple of years ago and he wasn't around anymore but we found his wife and had a good talk to her and she's and we morsi gave her a couple of flies and she put them in a, <laughs> in the, the hole where she had her earrings she's got these flies in her ear she thought that was fantastic Anyway, she said, no, you can come and we explained, we're just going to catch the fish, bone fish on the flats and release them, you know, we're not going to do any harm to anything and not a problem. We went back the next day and had an unbelievable, it's the best days bone fishing I've had and I've had a few good ones, um, but it was by far the best. Um, I think we caught over, over 30 fish and the average fish were probably around six pound i got one that was 11 or 12 pound or something um fantastic fishing anyway we thought oh we'll we'll go back the following day we're not going <laughs> to miss out on this so we drove up there but when we're out on the flats uh, there was a tour guide who was guiding some french people um to a shallow area where there were sharks and they were just those lemony type sharks they weren't really dangerous we had them swimming around our legs the whole time we were fishing for bones um and 
as soon as you start walking towards them, they just move away. Um, but I think he hyped them up a bit and said how dangerous these sharks were and, you know, it was part of his whole spiel. And he walked past and he saw us and uh, according to one, one of the French uh, backpackers could speak English. And anyway, he's waving to Morsi and I to get out of the water. We're out on the flat. We'd only caught a couple of fish. Tide had just turned. It was starting to push in and the conditions were, we didn't really want to go in there. But anyway, Morsi said, oh, I better go and have a talk to him because we've got permission from the, the, the wife of the, the chief. Anyway, Morsi's gone in there and this bloke's got a machete and he's whacked his sage rod with the machete and started carrying on. And when I saw that, I started walking over as well. Anyway, he's told us, to get out of there and we thought uh, he's got the machete i guess we yeah. probably <laughs> should um and uh, anyway we ended up walking back and he followed us all the way with this knife bush knife and uh, we got in the hire car and we both said to each other as soon as we get back to the car just get in real quick we're out of here and he picked up a big lump of coral and threw it put a dent in the car um, anyway, that was the end of our bone fishing up that end of the island. We had some great fishing. Lost me again. Am I still there? Still there? Hello. You're there, mate. I think we just dropped out Got for a me? second. <laughs> okay. Do you want to go back on anything? Or? No, we can go back from where he threw a lump of coral. That's fine. Yeah. Anyway, we've, we've gone back and we were actually staying in a resort because we had our Monique, Pete's wife and Pete, uh, my wife, were with us as well back at the resort and mentioned it to them and uh, they said yeah there's been a few problems up there and uh, you're probably better off sticking down the other end of the island <laughs> for any fishing and i think i got my biggest fish down the other end of the island anyway so we still had some great fishing but um yeah it's interesting some of the things that have happened on some of the sheets we've done i guess it's um stories like that that really stick with you like if it was just a, a normal day's fishing all the time you probably wouldn't remember as much yeah. of it <laughs> No, there's a lot of things that happened um, on a lot of the shoots that we've done that people aren't aware of that um, uh, would probably find very interesting or be amazed that uh, we've had a few dodgy ones and a few close calls actually, yep. uh, one in South Africa and uh, um, places where we probably shouldn't have been at the time and uh, uh, at one stage we were having the trips were being organised by someone else and we didn't have much say in or we weren't communicating with the people that were taking us and didn't realise what we were getting into. And, um, yeah, there's been some interesting things happen at times. But anyway, that's all part of the fun. Well, at least you're, um, you're in Bowen now. I think she's nice and safe now and you've got a great fishery on your doorstep. So <laughs> Yes, yeah, we're, we're in a good place here. Uh, we're really enjoying it. Uh, I don't think we'll be going anywhere else uh, from here. And uh, I, love, I still enjoy my guiding here. I'm slowing down a little bit and um just working on the best tides now i think all my good tides are booked through until the end of the year now this year uh, so i'll be fairly busy from uh, oh, a couple of days time i start getting busy again and you've got so many options up still... there too like your flat fishing's world class like the, the numbers of big golden trevally there and fish and tuskies yeah. and all that sort of thing but yeah then you've also got the you can go to the freshwater impoundments and sight cast barra over a meter you've got the sooties yes. you've got all that sort of thing so yeah. Yeah, a huge variety. Um, a lot of people call it Windy Bowen, and we do get we get the southeasters here, like everyone else does in North Queensland. Uh, the Whit Sundays down the bottom end get a lot more wind than we do here, actually. 
Um, but I've got, um, yeah, I've worked it out pretty well now and it'd have to be a cyclone or uh, more than 30 knots to, to stop us actually going fishing here. So uh, there's lots of options. And uh, as a fly fishery, um, it's, it's still pretty much unexplored in a lot of areas. Um, uh, a lot of the areas I fish uh, are fairly close to where we live and um, there's a lot of areas that are a bit further away that I, I, I look at occasionally, but uh, the fishing's so good, um, you know, close by that I don't uh, need to travel that much. So it's a, it's a great area to be guiding in. And I, I still enjoy my photography. I'm doing a bit more of that again, still photography now and um, writing a few articles. We're putting some posters out. And uh, I've been really enjoying your articles, sort of particularly the, um, the latest ones in Fly Life. Um, there was the Trophy Barra article, one called The Permit Obsession, and then you had another one, Road Tripping for Sooties. Um, the photography was excellent and, yeah, just really good stories and great information. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I love and that's why I really enjoy this area, you know, the diversity of it and they're the, the sort of fisheries I really enjoy fishing and they lend themselves to fly fishing particularly. Um 90% of what I do is sight fishing, even the barra and the impoundments, uh, <clears throat> and that's what I really enjoy, and the people that fish with me appreciate that, and uh, it is a, a great area to, to sight fish in. Um, the water clarity here is very good. We don't tend to get the dirty water they get in a lot of other areas. Yep. I know when Bargy and I were looking, that was a big issue. Uh, a lot of areas we had to fish around the neeps or just on the, the making tides just after the neeps to get the water clarity. But we've got oceanic water here on the flats most of the time. Uh, unless we get a massive dump of rain and a lot of wind, um, the water's always clear. And we've usually got blue sky because uh, where we are is a bit of a rain shadow. And during the dry season particularly, there's no clouds. So yeah. for sight fishing, it's a, a great place to live it's everything you need for the recipe basically yep yeah i see um you're also doing a few articles for ffi magazine as well so that's basically promoting australia on an international level as well i read one of your articles half snook half beast all attitude uh, which basically spoke about barramundi fishing around the country and you spoke about lefty cray in there and i really enjoyed that one too yes uh, i enjoyed writing that one and um uh, it just it took me back you know, to times with Lefty and uh, the trip we did to Florida. I caught some snook over there as well. Um, I still think our bar are a much better sport <laughs> fish. <laughs> they, they grow a lot bigger and they've just got more attitude. Yep. Um, but the, the snook are very similar in a lot of ways and their feeding habits and how you catch them and the flies you catch them on. Uh, and I love doing that. I had a hire car one day, uh, Pete, wife and my wife and I went for a drive and I put an eight-weight fly rod in the boot thinking oh, I probably won't use it. We just had a day where we were looking around and doing the touristy stuff, and but I, I didn't want to go without putting it in. <laughs> so uh, I ended up catching, I think um, I caught a couple of snook. That's what made me think of it just off the bank in a spot we pulled up like a little lagoon. Uh, quite a few largemouth bass, which I'd never caught before, and a peacock bass. Yeah, right. And there were tarpon rolling in the distance I couldn't get a shot at them and there were quite a few alligators around so I didn't want to go wading although they're not as bad as our saltwater crocs so uh, that was an interesting day and uh, yeah the the snook um, they're, they're 
they're, they're very similar and their habits are very similar. Their profile is a little bit, it's, they're not as bulky as a barra. Uh, and I think the barra have got a bit more attitude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just, so. Uh, have you got somewhere, interesting. like you've, you've covered a lot of Australia and you've been some incredible, incredible places overseas. Is there somewhere that you've still got on the bucket list that you really like, have to do it? I guess I've always, um, yeah, there's possibly a couple of places. I, I would love to go to uh, Alaska yeah. and just see the wildlife and experience the salmon and the, the fishery over there. Um, there's, um, I'd like to go to Montana. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of people I've been guiding uh, that live in Montana and are always and in Florida. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have had quite a few overseas people that I've been guiding, and they're always inviting us over there. And so maybe we'll do a trip. COVID sort of put a stop on everything recently, but maybe we'll do a couple of trips. Uh, I think Montana. It's one of those places. It gets a lot of pressure. That's for sure. It's well known. Um, but uh, I just, it, it'd be a bit like the Florida experience, I think, you know, just. Well, there's so um, much history the, ingrained with all the trout fishing yes. and that sort of thing there. So yep. it's a bit of a mecca for that. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a few places I'd probably still like to go, but uh, I'm quite happy uh, here now. You know, I just pick my days and uh, I try and make sure I've got a, a few days left on the good tides when I can go for a fish myself. Yeah. Um, and I just sneak out on my own and go and do my own thing, and I, I enjoy doing that. Um, I still enjoy guiding, So, uh, and I've got a, a group of people I guide now that I know well and get along really well with, so uh, I'll keep doing it for probably quite a while yet. It's I'm 70 this year. It's, <laughs> so. it's really refreshing to hear, though, like considering you've had quite a long career in the fishing industry, whether guiding or filming and that sort of thing, and it's good that like you are still so excited and passionate about it. You talk to some people and after sort of 20 odd years, they're starting to get burnt out and sometimes not even that long. Um, so it is very refreshing to hear that excitement in your voice still. Yeah, I still love it. And um, if I get to a point where I don't, then I'll probably stop doing it. But I can't see that happening in the near future. Yeah. I know uh, I've done some pretty big walks here and that day I was talking about was a big one. And uh, it took me a couple of days to get over that, really. So uh, I, I know, you know, there'll be a time when I can't get down to those places anymore. But um, the flats fishery, fishing out of the boat, something I can keep doing for quite a while yet. And as long as I keep enjoying it. And I, I still get really excited. And I guess the fish that excites me more than any uh, still, and I get the shakes sometimes when when it's all happening, is the permit. You know, the permit for me, um, I don't think anyone will ever really work them out. Uh, and it's just an ongoing process of trying to work out the best methods of catching them. And the longer I do it, the more I find I didn't know, you know, I, I thought I'd got to a point where I had a pretty good plan and had worked out a fairly consistent way of catching them and then permit being permanent, of course, <laughs> they they just uh, yeah make you realise, no, you haven't. <laughs> On another day, they're completely different to what they were the day before. But yeah, I still get excited about that and um, uh, seeing them in clear, shallow water here and casting to them and watching their reaction, I, I don't think I'll ever get sick of that. So, yeah, um, yeah I still enjoy it. I, I, 
I haven't uh, certainly haven't got to the burnt out stage, not with my fly fishing. And I, I think fly fishing is always a learning process. Um, I with you know I've been fishing since I was I could walk really. My father used to take me, but um, I really only fly fish these days. I, I very rarely go lure fishing. I'll go out to the reef occasionally when the weather's good here to catch a feeder fish and drop some vibes down or catch a mackerel or something. But apart from that, um, if I go to enjoy a day's fishing, uh, I'll just take a fly rod. And I, I love the whole thing about it. I love tying my, my own flies um, and I just find I'm always learning with it. So um, yeah, you've been a great supporter with, of the shop, like with your fly tying and getting materials and all that sort of thing. We're always bouncing ideas off each other. So um, I've definitely learned a lot from you in that aspect, and really appreciate the support there. With your um, one of your latest programs, you've been making up some really cool custom posters, basically where people you can um, put their photos of them with the barra on flyer on lure with a nice background, a bit of information where they caught it, what it's on. How can people find out a bit more about that? Yeah, we've just set up a, or we've changed our website, fishingdownunder.tv. So it's one word, fishingdownunder.tv. And if anyone wants a bit of info on that, they'll find us on there. And all the info about the posters is on there. Uh, We've done quite a few and we can do canvases. We can do them in metal art or just a standard poster, laminated. But the big thing is... um, with the, the first one we've done is a barra. Yep. Um, we'll do other species as time goes on. I'll probably do a flats one soon. Um, but anyone who's caught uh, a barra, you know, that they've got a reasonable photo of, uh, if they send it through to us, and all the info's on the website, we can actually put the photo of them within this. Uh, it's quite a nice poster. It's got a croc and, you know, some pandanus and a sunset and, the quality um, is exceptional. A, I actually got those sample ones you sent the shop the other day, so I'm going to put them up above yeah. our um, real cabinets there on display. And I was really impressed with yeah. the quality of the paper that they've used and how vibrant the colours yes. come out. Yeah, it's all very good quality. We've made sure of that. And people can put their own photo in there if they send it through to us uh, and we'll get turn it around, get it back to them very quickly. So um, for someone who wants a, a photo, you know, with uh, a nice... Uh, something they can put in their office or as a wall hanging um they can buy there are different versions there depending on how much they want to spend uh from the cheaper even the cheap one we've got there is uh it's water resistant paper it's very good quality paper as opposed to it's a great uh, gift idea too like for someone to put up in the pool room or the office um it's something that someone might not necessarily think of for themselves, but as a gift idea, if you've got someone that's got a 40th or a 50th or something like that and a fish of a lifetime, I know my wife exactly. got me a picture of a barra caught up in Weeper, got it framed with the flyer corded on, I've got it in here in the office, yeah. and I really yeah. sort of cherish that. Every time I'm sitting down to tie flies or do something yes. on the computer, I look up and it's always a great memory. So that memorabilia side yeah. of it, it's um, yeah, it's a great idea. Exactly. Yep. So that's what well, one of the things we're up to at the moment in between the guiding. So you're still, still pretty busy, um, mate. Considering look, like seventies just around the corner, you're still pretty flat out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I like to keep busy, and it's a team effort. I mean, Pete, my wife, uh, is part of it, and um, she keeps me going. I guess so she's quite a bit younger than I am. For she's any, got the for energy. For anyone that hasn't met Pete, like yeah, met Peter, she's one of the loveliest ladies I've met. 
Um, she's very accommodating and, yeah, you, you've certainly found a good life partner there and it's good that she is so involved with the business and with your travels. Yeah, very lucky. Uh, and she uh, she does it and she enjoys it, you know. It's it's not work for her. It's something she enjoys It's a doing, lifestyle, so. yeah. Yep, and it's the lifestyle we both love, so we're both very lucky. Yeah. Well, I think we've covered a fair bit in this podcast, John. I wouldn't mind getting you on at a later stage and just see what you're up to, especially sure. after this flat season. Um, I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing some more photos on Facebook and Instagram, some more big permit in Golden yep. Valley. But um, I just yep. want to thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I know how busy you are. I always enjoy having a conversation with you, always take something away from it. Um, but, yeah, I'll get you on again soon and we'll um, yeah, shoot the breeze again. No, I really enjoyed it, Josh. Not a problem. Thank you. Righto. Thanks, John. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and look forward to bringing you another one soon. To book a charter with John Hankey or to make an inquiry about his artwork for anglers, visit fishingdownunder.tv. You can also visit fishflix.tv if you'd like to watch any of the episodes from the Fishing DVD series or Wildfish. Fish.